We do welcome each one uh, to the adult Bible class this morning, and we trust uh, the Lord uh, will bless as we gather together and as we meet with Him. Let us seek the Lord in prayer, and then we'll turn uh, to the Scriptures. Let us pray. Gracious God and our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for this day, a day in which we can meet with Thee afresh. We rejoice, O God, that uh, this a day has been set aside by Thee for us not only to rest, but to come to meet with Thee, our God. And our Father, as we gather together in this place, we pray that Thou would meet with us. We pray that Thou would teach us. We pray that Thou would open Thy truth to us and apply it to our hearts and to our souls. And may uh, we see much of the Savior this day. And Father, we ask that Thou would draw near to us, that Thou would be present here. And may uh, the glory all be Thine. And uh, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Returning in the Word of God to Psalm 117, and then again we'll refresh ourselves of 2 Timothy chapter 3 and the verse 16. Uh, but Psalm 117, last uh, time uh, we were together, I think it was the end of January, uh, we considered the inerrant veracity of Scripture and the fact that the Word of God is without error, that it is infallible, and uh, that it is true. And we only got uh, part way uh, through what we wanted to say, and so we're coming back uh, to that subject this morning, and in the will of God, uh, we'll finish it off. Uh, but I want to read Psalm 117 again, uh, the two verses off this psalm. And there the Word of God says, O praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise Him, all ye people. For His merciful kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. There we have a reason uh, to praise the Lord, because His truth, His Word, endures forever. It will not be broken. It will not cease to be truth. It will endure forever. And when we think of the Word of God, the fact that it is inerrant, the fact that it is true, it endures forever. And then I want to draw your attention again to 2 Timothy chapter 3, the verse 16, and the verse 17 as well. And here we have a verse that tells us that the Word of God is inspired by Him, and therefore the inspiration of Scripture is a foundation stone for the inerrancy and the truth of Scripture, because as we considered last time, God is truth. God is true. And if Scripture is originated by God Himself, then God, who is pure and perfect, cannot originate something that is untrue, something that is a lie, something that may have the truth twisted or corrupted or whatever way we want to look at what a lie is. Scripture is true because God is true. And verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3 tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The inerrant 
veracity of Scripture is a non-negotiable doctrine in our Reformed Protestant faith. I trust that as we considered uh, last time the biblical foundation of the inerrancy of Scripture, we saw that it is something taught in the Word of God, and we saw that it is something that we cannot set aside. If we set aside uh, the fact that Scripture is inerrant, and that word inerrant uh, being uh, compatible or the same as uh, the word infallible, one is a more modern term, uh, one is older. Scripture is inerrant, it is infallible. And when we use those terms, we refer specifically to the original autographs, the original manuscript that the Apostle Paul, for example, under inspiration from God, wrote out, and that was, say, the original copy of one of his letters. The original manuscript, the original autograph is inerrant, and it is infallible. And of course, then we believe that God has preserved that and preserved the message that was written down in that original manuscript. He has preserved it uh, through it being copied, through it being translated uh, until our present day and the version of Scripture that we have in front of us. We believe God has preserved His Word. But that is another topic entirely. Uh, but this doctrine of the inerrant veracity of Scripture builds upon the origin, the inspiration, the authority of God's Word, and it means that Scripture is true and without error, and therefore it is trustworthy. Uh, last time, just to give a very brief recap, we considered the biblical foundation of the inerrancy of Scripture, and we considered that Scripture teaches that God is truth. As God is the foundation of all of this, God is truth, and Scripture teaches as well that every word of God is pure. The psalmist said that the words of the Lord are pure words, a silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. We saw as well that Scripture teaches that it is the standard of truth, the standard of truth. And, of course, as Reformed Protestants, we believe the Word of God is the standard for what we believe, the standard for our doctrine, the standard for what God requires of us. And we saw as well that Scripture teaches that it is a sure foundation. Psalm 19 tells us the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord, it, Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The truth of the Lord endureth forever. There is a sure foundation in view here, and we can rest upon it. Thomas Boston said, the truth of God is an immovable rock upon which we may safely venture our salvation. So, in other words, God's Word, because it is inerrant, is absolutely sure. We can depend upon it. We can depend upon it. And dear believer, let us be thankful to God uh, that we have a Word we can depend upon. When we think of school textbooks, science textbooks, whatever it might be over the years, do they not change? Do they not vary? I remember at school having different editions of textbooks, and one edition having something the other edition didn't have, and it causing a little bit of confusion, and some of us with the older edition had to get photocopies of the new edition in order to have uh, that little bit of teaching uh, on that particular subject. But the Word of God is not something that is updated year after year after year. It is true. It is inerrant. 
We have all that we need therein. We can depend absolutely upon it. And so moving on this morning, I want us to consider firstly the historical belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, the historical belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. We considered last time uh, some of the biblical evidence regarding this, uh, but let us for a moment just consider the historical belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. The Old Testament Scriptures uh, were the oracles of God that had been given to the Jews. The Jews therefore believed that uh, this Word was without flaw and error, and the Word of God was absolutely true because it testified to that point. In John 17, verse 7, the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of His Father by saying, Thy Word is true. Thy Word is true. The early church fathers were those historic leaders within the church in the years and centuries following the death of the apostles. And while Ura became began to creep into the church, which paved the way for the rise of the Roman Catholic system, many of these men were orthodox on many of the fundamentals of Scripture, including inerrancy. They believed the Word of God that they had did not have error. One of those men affirmed the complete truthfulness of the Old Testament and said, you've searched the Scriptures which are true, which were given by the Holy Spirit. You know that nothing unrighteous or counterfeit is written in them. Another man spoke of the Scripture of truth. Another man spoke of the Scriptures that are indeed perfect, no flaw found within them. And the early church understood the truthfulness of Scripture in a number of ways. It understood that Scripture recorded real events, real events, real stories of real people. Some of those early church fathers, one in particular, Oregon, criticized views that the biblical writers were tellers of tall tales. And this is an issue when we consider the Word of God and when we consider some of the things within the Word of God. Noah building an ark and how the world today has taken that account and how it has turned the ark into a something like a cruise ship. Well, it doesn't look like a modern cruise ship, but a cruise ship with all these cute little animals and the giraffe's head sticking out of the roof, and they're all going on a pleasure cruise. There's nothing there in that picture of the judgment of God, of the wrath of God, of the salvation of the Lord being upon Noah and his family, of the great message that comes out of the ark regarding Christ being the only way of salvation. And of course, the whole flood narrative uh, points uh, to what will happen at the end of this world and points to the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this world has taken that and it has turned it into a fairy tale. A fairy tale. I'm almost surprised there's been no Disney movie about Noah's ark. There have been movies, but a Disney movie about Noah's ark twisting everything that there is. It'd be a great opportunity for them. But we see it in the world continually how this account is a fairy tale. We see as well how uh, in a more serious way also, that it is disregarded as false, as a legend, as a myth, as something that is not true and something that could never be true, and how it is set aside. And therefore, if we take that account of Noah's Ark, and if there are problems with it in regard to the truthfulness of the account that we have, that infects all of Scripture, does it not? 
If one account can be proven to be false, well, how can we trust everything else? How can we trust everything else? We can think of David and Goliath. We can think about Jonah and the wheel and these other accounts that have these records of things happening that are not normal. We can think of the miracles of Christ, things happening that are supernatural. How do we explain them? Well, men try to explain them other than the power of God, and therefore the Word of God is not inerrant, and it is not telling the truth, and it is dramatizing things just for effect. The Word of God is true, and those early church fathers did criticize heretical views that the biblical writers were tellers of tall tales. They were not. They spoke the truth. They also had the view that Scripture cannot contradict Scripture. In other words, there is no disharmony within the Bible. Scripture it does not have within it things that are against what it teaches. There is no disharmony, but is that not something we see continually in fiction? If you pick a blockbuster movie and then Google the name of that movie with the term, the name of that movie and the term plot hole, what comes up on Google? But a list of things that happened in that movie that people who review it think, well, that can't be right. If this was real, this person would do something else. This event would not have happened. And they pick holes and flaws in the plot of the movie because those movies are penned by fallible, wicked, sinful men. There are contradictions. There are strange actions because it is a made-up story. But when we come to the Word of God, there are no plot holes. There are no contradictions, for it is without error, and it is true. And this belief in the inerrancy of Scripture continued through the early church. It continued into the days of the Reformation, and, of course, in the Reformation, the Reformers reaffirmed the inerrancy and the truthfulness of Scripture. There were many key aspects of the doctrine of Scripture that were debated during the Reformation, but the truthfulness of Scripture was agreed upon both by Protestants and Roman Catholics, although I think we should note that the Roman Catholic interpreted and applied the truthfulness of Scripture in ways that opposed Protestant belief. They did not have Scripture as their only rule of faith and practice, because they believed it was without error and it was true, but they added to it. But Martin Luther expressed the view that not only has Scripture never erred, it cannot err. He meant that everything in Scripture is real, and that Scripture, again, cannot contradict Scripture. It can be depended upon. And part of that is connected to the fact the Word of God is inspired. God inspired the writers. God does not make mistakes. The Westminster Confession of Faith, moving into the 1600s, considers Scripture the rule of faith and life. And when we I think of what the confession says in chapter 31 about synods and councils, church courts. It speaks about synods and councils setting down 
rules and directions for the better ordering of public worship, for the government of the church to receive complaints, uh, make decrees and determinations. I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. And the big thing that we have here is that these things are to be in line with the Word of God. A church does not have the power to make up its own rules and regulations based on its own ideas outside of the Word of God. The Confession says again uh, about synods and councils, they can err, many have erred, and the divine said, therefore they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice. That's what we find happening in the Roman Catholic Church council decisions, the rule of men being the rule of faith and practice. But the divines here in the Westminster Assembly said that these things are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but are to be used as a help in both. In other words, if a decision is to be made by a particular church, the Word of God is the foundation, the Word of God is the guide upon which that decision must be based. And the same is true individually with ourselves. If we have decisions to make in life, the Word of God must be our only rule of faith and practice. That is what our forefathers held to and believed, that as the church was ruled and governed, as believers were converted and grew in their faith, God's Word was their rule of faith and practice. We often hear about the importance of the faith of our fathers, a faith that God blessed, a faith that held true. And dear believer, we need that very same faith, a faith that is grounded in the inerrancy and truthfulness of God's Word. God blessed the Reformers. Why? Because they viewed Scripture as true. God blessed the ministries of many preachers over the years because they held to the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. And dear believer, if you desire the blessing of God to be upon you, to be upon your family, to be upon your congregation, then God's Word must be believed by you as an inerrant and a true Word. And that is vital in the world today, because as we'll see in a moment, this great belief in the doctrine of inerrancy or the inerrancy of Scripture began to be eroded and rejected in the last number of centuries. If you desire the blessing of God, then God's Word must be believed by you as without error and filled with the truth of God alone. I want you to see, thirdly here, the modern-day objections to the inerrancy of Scripture. The modern-day objections to the inerrancy of Scripture. Some years ago, I read an interesting book. It was called The Undercover Revolution. It was by Ian Murray, who's associated with the Banner of Truth. He's written many books. And in that book, he traced the authors of some 19th-century novels. And he made the claim that he, these authors helped to undermine the religious society in the United Kingdom by their works of fiction. Today, we would view uh, some of those works as, as English classics. But in those days, the novel uh, was a very new thing. It was an early form as well of mass entertainment. I don't think many young people today would look back in 19th century novels as something exciting. 
Uh, I remember having uh, to read uh, Great Expectations, and I despised it. I didn't enjoy reading it at all. And I, I think potentially I had to read it for an English exam uh, to enter into Bible college. Uh, but uh, that's beside the point. Uh, there are many uh, works uh, that I'm sure some of us studied uh, during our uh, years in education. But back then, novels and fiction began to greatly increase. We have Jules Verne and others who uh, wrote uh, strange and wonderful stories that captured uh, the imagination. And so the general population began to read and to enter these fantasy worlds that took their attention away from the reality of God and His truth. And we see that even more today with the mass entertainment industry. Instead of filling our minds with the reality of the inerrant and true Word of God, this world desires to fill our minds with the imaginations of whatever they may have, whether it's sinful imaginations or whether it's uh, imaginations uh, that are not wrong and sinful, but yet they distract from what our purpose needs to be. Now, I don't think all novels and all movies are wrong. We need to be selective in line with Scripture. But we ought not to put all our attentions and all our thoughts upon these things, these fantasy worlds, ignoring the reality around us, the reality that affects us, the reality of the inerrant and true Word of God. And the claim that was made in this particular book, The Undercover Revolution, was that these novels began to chip away at those in the population who would have read spiritual books, who would have read the great works of the Puritans, books that were maybe more easier to read than some of the Puritans, books that captured the imagination, books that are filled with enjoyment. We could picture it perhaps as sitting and reading uh, a big novel or, or, or watching an exciting movie. I think we would pick the exciting movie more often than not. But yet it began to distract and to take away from the Word of God. And this, uh, this writer traces uh, that trend. And in light of that, the Word of God did not have the attention it ought to have. And in that same period, uh, there were many advancements in science and exploration and understanding nature and medicine. Uh, there were also movements, not advancements, movements. I prefer the term movement in the field of theology. For example, when we think of science and evolution, there was movement, not advancement, uh, because those theories are wrong. But there was movement in the world of science. There was movement in the world of theology uh, because views were changing, not for the better, but for the worse. And one of the key thought processes in this development was biblical criticism. Uh, there were men over the years uh, prior to the 19th century. Uh, one particular man offered a theory that concerned a pre-Adam approach to Scripture. He taught that people existed prior to Adam. He taught that Moses wrote about not the beginning of humanity, but the beginning of the Jewish race, and therefore Adam was a Jew. He was not the first man. It's a big red flag going up right there if we believe in the, in the inerrancy of Scripture. It was believed that some races of humans had lived as far back as 50,000 years, yet 
Europeans believed that because of the influence of Scripture, the world was a mere 5,000 years old. And so began the process of reconciling Scripture and new scientific discoveries. And that continued. We have Darwin's Origin of the Species that was published in 1859, the same year there was a revival in the north of Ireland, 1859. And this work undermined people's confidence in the truthfulness of the creation account of Genesis. I remember preaching uh, at that time, I think it was the 150th anniversary of the origin of the species being published and mentioning some things about Darwin himself. And if I remember, he uh, was a Church of England, grew up in the Church of England. He, He knew something of the Word of God. But yet all this was set aside. And as uh, he wrote this book, The Origin of the Species, and setting forth uh, the thinkings of his mind regarding evolution, that work undermined people's confidence in the truthfulness of the creation account. Therefore, it can't be trusted. Men responded. And instead of saying, well, the Bible is inerrant, the Bible is true, we'll stand on this because we believe this, they began to see how they, can, how they could fit the Word of God in with Darwin's teaching. We therefore have ideas such as the gap theory, where there's a gap in the book of Genesis, and that, of course, explains where all these fossils that are millions of years old fit into the picture. God created the world. It wasn't all good. It was wiped clean and remade, and God built on the old world. And that's where all these fossils come from. And that is unscriptural because everything was good, as we see in Genesis chapter 1. And the reality was that men struggled to align science with their faith in Scripture, and they came down upon the side that science is right, and therefore Scripture must be interpreted differently to support the science. And, of course, that is the wrong approach the wrong approach. Moving into the 20th century, I've mentioned before Professor Davy of the Irish Presbyterian Church, and there are others as well who undermined the authority of Scripture. Scripture can't be right. When we think of the virgin birth, that's impossible. That can't happen. I've mentioned Noah's Ark already. And when we think of the important fundamental truths of Scripture, men began to say, this can't be as the Bible says it is. We see today that hell is removed from preaching. The true nature of the gospel is set aside. Uh, We uh, tune in. You shouldn't tune in, but if we tuned in to hear Joel Osteen preach, uh, there is this message of wealth and happiness. There's no message of sin. There's no message uh, of the gospel of him driving home to his hearers the need to repent and to trust God for salvation the way Scripture says. There's been a watering down, a changing of the message. And if we truly believe Scripture is inerrant and Scripture is true, why would we change it? Why would we change it? The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 tells us that the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined 
And all decrees of counsel, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture, the only rule of faith and practice. And our confession is clear concerning this, because Scripture is inerrant, and it must be our final authority in all matters. What did Martin Luther say at the Diet of Worms? He said, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. His conscience was captive to the Word of God. And dear believer, if we believe Scripture to be true and Scripture to be inerrant, our conscience must be held in captive to it. It is the final authority. This is one of the issues that faces many modern churches today when faced with the push of the LGBT agenda. In fact, it faces every denomination, ourselves included. There are questions then asked, do we embrace this agenda? Do we accept this agenda? Do we allow the addition of practicing homosexuals into the membership of the church? Do we allow practicing homosexuals into the leadership of the church? How do we react to this strong and intense emphasis in society upon the rights of those who identify as such? Do we agree with it? Do we support it, this minority group that many are supporting today? It's an issue that affects every church, for every church needs to have a position on those matters. So, how do we commence? How do we approach that subject? Well, simply, what does the Bible say about these matters? That's where we go to. It's our only rule of faith and practice. What does the Bible say about same-sex relations? And the Bible, as the inerrant and true Word of God, says these things are sinful, therefore we are to reject these things coming into the house, into the worship of God. But for some, the answer is the Bible is old, the Bible is out of date. The words in Scripture that forbid same-sex relations are just the Old Testament period. Society has moved on and therefore we need to bring the Bible up to date. Nothing about it being inerrant, nothing about it being true, nothing about the Word of God being as applicable at the time of Christ as it is now. It just needs to be updated, and all of this now in society needs to be embraced. And so we see that Scripture is then subject to human ideas and worldly philosophies, it's no longer the only rule of faith and practice. Therefore, Scripture is limited, maybe. Therefore, Scripture is in error on this subject, perhaps. Maybe Scripture then is not telling the truth about this matter. And this is where they then come from. If you embrace these things, then you cannot say Scripture is inerrant. You cannot say Scripture is true because you've ripped it up. You've ripped it up. I'm not going to hold my Bible up when I say that because I remember many years ago a minister 
who was speaking about all these churches who take their confession of faith, and they rip them up, and he held up his notes as if his notes were the confession of faith. And as he said that they ripped them up, he ripped up his notes. And so, I'm not going to risk uh, doing that this morning. But that's really what men and what churches are doing. They are ripping up their confession of faith. They are ripping up the Scriptures, ripping up the Scriptures. That is what modern society, what the modern church, sadly and grievously is doing. And dear believer, what are we to do in light of that? Do we go with the flow? Do we say, well, they must be right. We need to change. We need to embrace. The same way a company always needs to move forward and embrace new ideas and new products and new philosophies in order to survive, so must the church. No, because Scripture is inerrant and Scripture is true. And if Scripture is inerrant and true, the church does not need to change on that regard. Scripture holds, the church must hold firm to the Word of God. Of course, the doctrine then of inerrancy, the inerrant veracity of Scripture, is one that is very relevant to us, very relevant to us. We must believe it. We must hold to it. We must not be ashamed of it. We must not compromise on it. We must not compromise on it. How many will say the Bible teaches this, and the Bible is true and inerrant on this point, and then they do the opposite? We must not compromise. We must not contradict ourselves. But notice finally, moving on from these thoughts, and we've seen some already, the practical implications of the inerrancy of Scripture. The practical implications of the inerrancy of Scripture. And so, if Scripture is our only rule of faith and practice, if it is beneficial to us as individual believers, as we see in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, there, it is profitable to us, then we can trust this Word. We can trust this Word. We must place our trust in believing everything that God has said, because everything that God has said is true. Dear believer, we must then, because Scripture is inerrant, drink deeply at the well of Scripture. We're not to correct Scripture with our own ideas. We are to judge. We are not to judge the Word of God, but we are to submit to it. We are to submit to it. I was reading a book on this uh, particular subject of the Word of God, and I believe it was a book uh, by uh, John MacArthur. I'm not 100% whether he wrote this actual chapter that I read or whether it was someone else contributing to it. Uh, but it dealt with biblical inerrancy in practical ministry. How do we approach this subject of biblical inerrancy? How does it affect us in the church? How does it affect us as listening to preaching? How does it affect uh, the preaching of the Word of God? And therefore, he said that if, if evangel evangelical preaching ought to reflect our conviction that God's Word is unfailing and without error. In other words, uh, the sermons we hear, the sermons we preach, the sermons we subject ourselves to must be 
reflecting the conviction that God's Word is without error, that God's Word does not fail, that God's Word is true. And too often, he said, it does not. It does not. He said that over the past few decades, in many so-called evangelical churches, there has been a discernible trend away from biblical preaching and a drift toward an experience-driven, pragmatic, audience-centered approach, focusing on the audience, the congregation enjoying themselves, not setting forth the truth of the Word of God. And how often that happens, how often that happens. I've said before about this church in England in the time that I went to school, not far away from where we lived, and how the congregation was lower than the uh, Church of England uh, minister would have liked, and how he set up a tightrope and walked across that tightrope and delivered his sermon on that tightrope. Now, he wasn't a truly gifted man in the sense that he could stand in that tightrope and preach for 50 minutes. Uh, He was preaching for a lot, lot less than 50 minutes. A little sentence or two, but it drew in the crowds. It drew in the crowds. As much as we would like to see our pastor stand on a tightrope in church uh, across here, that's not going to happen, and that should not be happening. There's a gimmick to get people in. An audience-centered approach, rather than resting upon the fact that God's Word is inerrant and true. And because it is inerrant and true, as we considered before, there is a sufficiency here. It is enough. It is all that we need. Dear believer, if you're witnessing to a friend or family member, and you leave them with the simple words of Scripture, you're leaving them with something that is inerrant, something that is true, something uh, that has a great divine sufficiency. You're leaving them with all that they need, all that they need. You don't need to walk across a tightrope and tell it to them. You just need to tell it to them to spread that word, to spread that word. And this book, this chapter, refers us to that verse in Timothy where Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. It speaks about the dangers the danger of the seasons, how things can change, and how the world can change, and how uh, the mood within the church can change. But we rest upon the inerrant and true Word of God through it all. It speaks about the devotion of the saint, the need for us to be devoted to the Word of God. And again, we're devoted to an inerrant Word, a true Word. It speaks about the dynamic of the Scriptures and how the Word of God is all that we need because it is inerrant and true. It speaks about the demand of the sovereign to preach the Word in season and out of season. This is expected by God that His Word would be preached with authority and with the great belief that it is true and without error. That's the mandate that comes from the inerrancy of Scripture, faithful preaching, Faithful preaching. Dear believer, we're to desire faithful preaching. We're to desire to put ourselves under faithful preaching. We're to pray for faithful preaching. We're to pray for faithful ministers and pastors and preachers. Because our denomination, our land, our nation, other true 
denominations that preach the Word of God, they need faithful men who believe that God's Word is inerrant. It is inerrant. I mentioned last time just briefly that the inerrancy of Scripture is a motivation for us to engage in evangelizing others. Why? Because we believe God's Word is true, therefore they need it. They need that message because sin is real, because hell is real, because hell is that final destination, because there is judgment and the wrath of God, but Christ is the Savior, and Christ is revealed in Scripture, and Christ is true, and the great words of Christ in Scripture are words that are not wrong, words that are not filled with error, and words that must be preached and presented time and time again. And therefore, whether we evangelize in our own personal lives, whether we evangelize on behalf of the church, wherever we find ourselves bearing witness for Christ, let us think of the inerrancy of Scripture and the truth of Scripture. If it is without error and if it is true, then men need to hear it, and we need to spread it, and we need to live it, and we need to proclaim it for the glory of Christ. As we close, let us hold firm to this. Let us depend upon the gospel. Let us depend upon the gospel that can be trusted because it is true and it is without error. Let us pray and, and let us close, please. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee for Thy word this morning. We thank Thee for this inerrant word, for this true word. And we pray, O God, that Thou would apply it to our hearts. May we know much of what it is to truly rest upon Thy Word. Father, if there be doubts in our minds, doubts in our hearts as to how some of these things can be true, we pray, Father, Thou would deal with the matter. Thou would give us that faith, that dependence upon Thee and upon Thy truth for the glory and honor of Thy name. We pray Thou would bless the services today, bring us together as Thy people in unity, and in grace as we gather together to worship Thee. And part us now briefly with Thy blessing, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.